on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Jonathan Beakey about the duplex regnum Christi and two kingdom theology. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what in the world is that duplex regnum? What? What did the early magisterial reformers think about it? Did they have any shared understanding potentially of a two kingdoms theology or a p- political theology in general? How did this contrast with the patristic and medieval thinkers? Did they influence the reformers in any particular way? Did Luther and Calvin think differently about this? Were they similar in any ways? How about the reformed orthodox? How about the views of Leiden, Geneva, Edinburgh? How might the reformers' views be similar to something like Van Drunen's approach or Christian nationalist approach or even neo-Calvinism and transformationalism? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. We think the church in today's age needs serious answers, which requires a sort of intellectual culture that we've tried to hopefully encourage with things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we don't think that the, the questions that we're facing today only need precise answers. They also need sort of virtuous dispositions in how we present it, how we think about it, how we treat others. So hopefully... Part of what we've tried to do with the podcast is to promote those things. So when we interview people, you'll hear people all across the spectrum, which is both fun for me and I think helpful for you guys to listen, to be able to experience firsthand what other people say. In today's episode, though, this is going to be more historical in nature, so it's just going to be a lot of fun. I get to ask lots of questions, and um, I don't have to feel bad about asking things because we're talking about people who are long gone now, so there's not as much pressure or tension <laughs> when you ask things. So it, th- this is going to be awesome. If you guys don't know Dr. Jonathan Beakey, you should. He's at Puritan Reformed uh, Theological Seminary, and he's he's awesome. So he's got the, the right blend in my mind of the pastoral uh, passion and vocation and the sort of like just approach to how you think about theology built in with the the academic stuff. We love to do both sides. So we'll interview pastors, we'll interview academics, but the people who kind of like blend both, I just love to promote them. So Dr. Beakey's awesome in a lot of ways. We're going to talk about what was originally the dissertation was also a Brill book. Um, So if if your library has access to Brill, make sure they get a copy of this on the duplex regnum. Christy, the the twofold kingdom in, in reformed theology. So before we get into it, Dr. Peaky, just give me, I don't know, a 60 second, like, what do you, what do you do? What do you like to teach? Those sort of things. Maybe what was it that drew you to this topic in particular for your sure. dissertation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, in. Jordan. And thanks so much for having me on your show. It's a real pleasure for me. Um, I'm, I'm glad I could join you. So yeah, 60, you're going to keep me to 60 seconds. That's good. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in Canada, and in, in fact, I'm Canadian, so I, I naturally like hockey and coffee. Um, I, <laughs> my Toronto Maple Leafs, they're they're hanging on on there, very very close. But um, what what drew me to this topic is I, I went to my undergrad uh, to Redeemer University College, and that's um, kind of a, a neo-Calvinist, transformationalist type of school. In fact, I had a number of classes by. Uh, Dr. Al Walters, who wrote Creation Regained. 
And then um, after that, I, I went to seminary in Westminster Seminary, California, uh, where Dr. Van Drunen, I had Dr. Van Drunen for a, a number of classes. So I really got a, a very different uh, perspective from there and uh, really respected both men, uh, very godly men, uh, but both claiming that, both claiming uh, Reformation sources uh, for their views. And so that really got me got me thinking and, and really interested in this particular topic and uh, really wanted to do, I loved historical theology, and so that's kind of what forced me into, into this study. Um, yeah, I, I w then when it ended up at Westminster Seminary in Philly, did uh, coursework there, but then transferred to a Dutch uh, university and finished a, a PhD there. Awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm married, I have uh, four kids, I'm an elder at uh, an OPC uh, church here locally. I teach uh, historical theology at Puritan Reformed, as you say, and I'm um, the academic dean here now. So, yeah. Very awesome. So I didn't know the connections to Van Drunen and to, to Redeemer. So this is, I've even got more questions now. This is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I feel like everybody's interested in this topic now. So this should be, I, I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions about it. So let's just start, yeah. set the table. When we talk about the duplex regnum, Christy, like w what in the world does that mean? And right. so just give me like that basic sort of definition. Yep. Yeah, so it's fancy Latin title, right? Duplex regnum Christi, uh, literally meaning the twofold kingdom of Christ. And um, this, this is technically a, a distinction from the Reformed Orthodox period. Uh, where it talks about, uh, where they, they spoke of a distinction in the, the kingdom of Christ, how Christ rules, how Christ reigns. And uh, they had lots of different labels for this, uh, but the most common labels would be to, to distinguish between the essential kingship of Christ versus the mediatorial kingship of Christ. And... Um, any time that they spoke of, or at the, any time that the scriptures speak of a kingdom or power or authority that's uh, transferred from the Father to the Son, uh, th that rose questions. Like, what, what does that mean? Does the Son not have power, authority to himself? Uh, is this, you know, wh what does that mean? So they, the Reformed Orthodox then distinguished between that authority and power that is natural, essential to the Son. Uh, it's, it's of his own right, uh, and that's a, appropriate to the Logos, to the second person of the Trinity. But then they spoke also of this mediatorial power and authority that he uh, exercises as the God-man. And this is a power and authority that's received from the Father uh, to, to the God-man. And he exercises that on, on behalf of the church and, and for his people. Okay, so as I think about that distinction, it's helpful. I want to think historically, you know, you mentioned how this is kind of developing Reformed Orthodox period. As we think about precursors to this versus what they're developing here, is there any overlap or similarity? Are there things that are latent in earlier reformers like Calvin and others that are kind of pointing in this direction? Or is this sort of an original outworking of the Reformed Orthodox period and their context. Yeah, good. Yeah, really, really, my dissertation is is an argument of um, unity and discontinuity. It, it really builds off of uh, 
well, you shouldn't say this, but the Muller thesis, right, of that, that there is a, this unity and, and discontinuity. So the discontinuity is in the specific terminology, the, the terms of the um, duplex regnum, you know, the regnum essentiali, regnum mediatorium, or the essential kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom. But certainly it builds off of uh, many earlier uh, reformers, you know, the even even early church uh, figures like Augustine, his his two cities, um, you know, even medieval figures. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, of Thomas, who who wrote a very unique work on oh, what did he on a, on the it's slipping me the, the name of it. But uh, his his unique work. So yes, it's it's certainly building off of, of earlier figures, and of course, uh, Luther and and his his two kingdom doctrine, and and that's articulated also by by Calvin as well. So yes, it's it's definitely building on all of these other figures, but then um, having its own distinct identity. And um, I, I think the one thing that that's interesting to me is as the Reformed Orthodox appropriate this from earlier figures, they locate it much more, much more um, connected to Christology, to who Christ is, the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And uh, whereas in earlier Reformers, the, the discussion is much more in uh, ecclesiology and, and the, the church and, and the church as distinct from, let's say, the magistrate or, or things like that. So um, I, I find it interesting where the discussion resides in their, in their systematic theologies. So you see this, this movement. And then uh, another interesting thing that I found is in response to why. Um, so what, what stimulated this further development or this um, you know, refinement of their theology and, and their distinctions? And I found it to be not so much driven by politics, but by more um, exegetical concerns. And, uh, and they were forced that way by by heretical positions. So both polemical and exegetical reasons why they were sort of forced to uh, really refine their distinctions. Uh, that Those are some interesting things that, that I've argued in, in my dissertation. Yeah, so that's helpful. So before I we want to, I want to look specifically at the, the Reformed Orthodox, I see claims quite often of like just this, and you mentioned Muller, this unity and diversity, so I imagine that's the direction you would go with it. But almost like the magisterial Protestants all have this same political theology, this same vision of two kingdoms. And the way that I see it online and, and other popular level publications is there's just like this one view. That doesn't seem to be what you're saying. So maybe just tell like, what are the continuities and discontinuities, the main ones that you would say across this broad reform period that you would say, this is the stuff that stays the same. This is the stuff that changes and develops. Yeah, yeah, that good. Um, just to just to echo echo that, that that's it seems to be the very common um, perception that there's this one monolithic view that holds fast throughout all periods, and and that's just blatantly uh, uh, false, right? I mean, history is often messier than we we perceive it to be. Uh, so my my goal essentially was to try to understand the 
uniqueness and development of this doctrine. It, it, it did not flatline. It did not stay the same, you know, from, let's say, a Luther on. And everybody is cast in the image of Luther or everybody is cast in the image of, of Calvin. Uh, so one thing, and again, I'm not, I'm not um, you know, so what, what things sort of differed in terms of discontinuity? Well, a big thing that I focus on is terminology. Uh, so Luther, for example, spoke of a plurality of uh, often in terms of two kingdoms. Um, you don't see that language of plurality in Calvin, for example. Uh, Calvin actually had a, a singular uh, focus on his terminology. Um, it was not a, it was, he did not speak of two kingdoms in the plural, uh, but most often, if not always, I think there might have been a couple cases that I found where he spoke of plurality, but, but generally speaking, he spoke of a twofold kingdom, which isn't, isn't uh, in, in terms of contemporary language, it's not um, as attractive. It doesn't have that, that same uh, flair to it as you know, two-kingdom theology uh, or two-kingdom distinction. So Calvin, Calvin himself spoke of a, of a twofold kingdom, uh, but then Calvin did speak of, uh, you know, in terms of spiritual or civil kingdom. That 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 was that was his language, which was not the language of later Reformed Orthodox figures, which, as I said, spoke of more of a mediatorial and essential uh, distinction. So that's one one area that I looked at in terms of growth and development. Um, you know, this this language moving from from Luther to Calvin to the Reformed Orthodox and even the plurality and, and uh, yeah, different, different things like that. Um, other, other areas uh, would, would be the, uh, the verses or the scriptural uh, verses associated with, with um, this particular doctrine. Uh, one particular verse that I found that popped up time and time and time again was uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. Where uh, the son, uh, it's you know the son is um, hands over the kingdom to the father. What does that mean? And so the Reformed Orthodox uh, later picked up on this this distinction of the essential versus the mediatorial as describing that particular verse. You don't find that amongst the magisterial reformers. They they're not using 1 Corinthians 15:24 to 28 to describe their their two kingdom distinction or twofold kingdom distinction. That's helpful. So as I think particularly about the Reformed Orthodox period, who are the main figures developing these ideas and how are they distinguished between each other? Yeah, good. Good good question. So I I had to find a way to, to sort of slice and uh, dissect my analysis because um, yeah, you can talk about the magisterial reformers, and you're talking, let's say, 60 years. But then when you get to Reformed Orthodoxy, after that, oh boy, that's like another 140 years, right? So how do you, how do you sort of uh, select, without being criticized for cherry-picking my, my particular theologians? So the way that I, I worked it was uh, I, did, I divided my dissertation into two parts part one covering the you know early church and and reformational period and then part two which would be more the focus on the reformed orthodox i broke that period into three different schools uh, 
uh, Leiden, Geneva, and Edinburgh. And so um, then, I, then I selected representative theologians from, from each school. And, and the reason why I found that to be an interesting way to slice history is, um, well, number one, it, my parameters of research were, were narrowed to those, those three particular schools. And I picked uh, Leiden, Geneva, and Edinburgh to try to capture different political arrangements or contexts so that I could test my thesis um, you know, against these different political contexts and see if there's differences uh, that way. And so, yeah, the, the two that I picked from uh, Leiden, well, I, I selected two from each of those schools. Okay, so I, I tried to get somebody from more at the earlier side of, um, you know, Reformed Orthodoxy and some a bit later in terms of their teaching. And, and the other reason why uh, selecting schools is um, schools were a dissemination of thought. So if, if you're looking at the professors who are teaching there, uh, that's a good avenue or window into the, this intellectual thought that is, is disseminated throughout Europe. Um, yeah, those are, and so I, I selected, um, let's say, I, for, for Leiden, who I focused on was, uh, first, of, first and foremost, Junius, Francis Junius. Um, he, he, was, he was one figure. And then um, from Geneva, I've, I focused on Francis Turretin. I've done a, a, a fair work on, on him. And then from uh, Edinburgh, I focused on uh, John Sharp, is, is sort of a lesser known figure, and then also uh, David Dixon. So, and I'm missing, yeah, uh, there, were, there were many other figures as well. I mean, Benedict Pictet, uh, there, there were other figures that I looked at throughout. I imagine our listeners are probably most familiar with names like Junius or Turretin. So I... And then, you know, if they're familiar with developments of neo-Calvinism, think, you know, they start thinking, associating places like Leiden with, with that eventually. Is there a, a significant difference between how Junius and Turretin would think about the, the, the twofold kingdom and related doctrines? Are they going on different trajectories that ends up leading you to where neo-Calvinism comes and they branch off? Or, or how should we think about that? Yeah, a good good question. So actually, Junius I found to be a very interesting figure uh, to examine. Um, Junius I argued was this pivotal figure uh, between the magisterial reformers and the Reformed Orthodox as a whole. Uh, Junius, as as you said, some of the some of the listeners might be familiar with him for his um, he's heralded often as the first to formulate the archetypal-ectypal uh, distinction um, in his uh, De Vera Theologia, the, on true theology. So that's, uh, that's an argument that's been made, a very uh, seminal figure in, in, in that area. But I've argued that Junius was the first to make this distinction on the, on the duplex regnum Christi in terms of a kingdom associated with the with a kingdom associated with Jesus Christ in terms of a, a personal kingdom or this uh, um, essential kingdom versus this mediatorial kingdom and he makes this again th this is the first reference that I've ever found to this in uh, 1588 
in his um, um, sacred parallels. This is a yeah, it's a it's a really interesting work where he goes through um, paralleling Old Testament verses uh, compared to New Testament verses, and so I naturally picked up on. Uh, the First Corinthians 15 passage, and uh, looked at that, and that, and that's where I found uh, his first reference to this particular distinction. Another interesting thing about Junius is in his uh, theological theses, he locates it under his theology proper. Uh, so uh, again, um, that was not the favored place for other Reformed Orthodox figures. So you're, you're, you asked about distinctions between him and, and Francis uh, Turretin. Uh, Turretin obviously comes later, and uh, it benefits from many other uh, figures. Well, this distinction uh, from Turretin finds itself under the discussion of the munis triplex, the, the threefold office of, of Christ, uh, prophet, priest, and king. So that's it's under his Christology section where he's dealing with this, whereas Junius, one of the very first to crystallize this distinction, puts it under his uh, theology proper section. Hey friend, are you a loyal listener to the London Lyceum? If you are, we really appreciate you. But we wanted to make sure you knew about our exclusive content option for the podcast. If you want, for just $5 a month, you can get access to all Kiffin's Keep episodes, Genuinely Particular, Typology by Immersion, and The Hanover House, and any of our other exclusive content that we produce. And all the episodes will be right there in your normal feed. So go ahead and click the link in the show description and you can sign up today. We appreciate you. So, I mean, I think all this is super interesting. I, I do have a question at this point that I want to, to spend a little bit of time on. David Van Drunen, you mentioned studying, or I guess studying with him, or being at Westminster, California with him. Yeah. Is his reception and reading of the Reformed tradition just, he's prioritizing different sources, or would you say that you think there's a misunderstanding of something that's going on somewhere that's causing a different sort of understanding of the two kingdoms? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Again, my my work remained mostly historical. Um, I tried to um, maybe hide behind the historical curtain, if if you might say, and just try to be as objective as possible and say here is here are what these men uh, said and why. Um, what what were the intellectual impulses for this? Um, but of course, there was there was a, a personal interest that that I had myself, um, having, as I said, studied under Dr. Van Drunen. Um, I've appreciated a lot what uh, David Van Drunen has done in terms of the the systematic theology behind uh, the distinctions. But I um, and again, he's he's not a historian. Uh, himself, he, he's he's more in the in the systematic theology. So while I've appreciated a lot of what he's done in, in the systematic theology, I thought that there was the way I could contribute and help the most is in terms of historical theology. And uh, granted, his his uh, 2010 work, where he did more of a, of a history, a historical survey, um, was not was not comprehensive, and it was. Um, you know, it, it surveyed, wow, it went from Augustine to, what was the latest figure, Van Til or Bart? I, I can't remember. I mean, it was it was massive. And so he only had a very small section 
on the Reformed Orthodox, maybe 40, 50 pages. Um, so if I could fault my, my mentor in, or, or teacher, um, it would be that, that there's too flat of a line between that's drawn between uh, a Calvin and a Luther and the Reformed Orthodox, um, especially in terms of the labels used, uh, civil kingdom versus spiritual kingdom, uh, things like that. So he's using using Calvin's terminology or even Luther's terminology and and casting it over over all of Reformed Orthodox uh, period. Yeah, no, that, that that that's very helpful. And clearly, we like David here, so there's there's no, um, I don't know what the word is. Sometimes you listen to podcasts and they're just like, let me just trash people. No, we're just trying to like get clear on views, right. treat people with respect and everything. Right. David's written for us at the London Lyceum. You can go check it out. I'll put a link to it. You can read it. <laughs> His little defense, uh, or I guess he he did a critique of theonomy. Which speaking of theonomy, this is not totally related, um, but it is in my head related to it. We've had, I don't know, over the last year or two, Stephen Wolf's Christian nationalism has been like everywhere. I don't really care to talk about Stephen's particularly view, particular view, but he does seem to say that like we should current in our current day return back to this magisterial Protestant sort of political theology. Um, I don't know if you've read much of it, but I'm curious. Do you think the way he's explaining what the the Reformed tradition view is, is that like where does that fit? Does he is he accurately summarizing a segment of the tradition that would fit well with, let's say, if you like his proposal, you should read Junius, or you should read Turretin, or you should read somebody else. If or is it? I don't, I don't. I guess I'm just trying to figure out like what sources is that really drawing from? Because I right. think he's trying to draw from Turretin quite a bit. Sure. Yes. He's he's definitely uh, uh, drawing from uh, the the two kingdom distinction. Um, it, it's interesting. You mentioned I I just finished teaching a class on the twofold kingdom of Christ. Um, so I I this is my first time actually teaching it as a as a THM PhD course here at, at Puritan Reformed. And um, in fact, I was able to get a guest lecture from Dr. Van Drunen more towards the beginning of the class, which was which was really helpful, and, and the students benefited from that. And then one of the textbooks that I have him read is um, Stephen Wolf's Christian Nationalism, or the case for that. So uh, you know, I'm trying to give them different uh, you know practical and systematic applications of this particular doctrine, and it's it's. You know, it's interesting that you you can come to and, and be say that you're using this distinction and be based on this reformed reformed orthodox distinction and come to very vastly different conclusions uh, like a David Vendrunen or a Stephen Wolf. Um, so we we had so much fun in class wrestling through all of these uh, issues and these uh, practical systematic applications. Um, I, I think uh, Stephen Wolf is, I would come to very, very different conclusions than him. Um, you know, I, I just looked at, um, you know, John Alsted, for example, one, um, one figure who wrote, what, what was this? This was uh, in 1630, he wrote a, a little treatise, Theological Casuistry, and Alsted himself was immersed in this particular distinction. I, I give a quote from him in my book where he clearly is working with this uh, mediatorial essential distinction in Christ's rule and reign. 
and um, he he himself comes to very different conclusions than than Wolf in terms of what the Christian magistrate or, or prince should do and can do. So you know, there's there's lots of ways where I would differ from from Wolf. Um, you know, practical applications from this distinction. Yeah. So now, as I think about almost the resurgence of neo-Calvinism, that seems to be you were at Redeemer University, this transformationalist sort of approach. Is that an outgrowth of traditional reform thinking, do you think, um, where it is consistent with thinking about the essential and editorial kingship of Christ? Or is this totally different? Yeah, I, I mean, so Van Drunen himself makes the case that, that Kuiper would be within this line, right? Uh, you know, whether whether you agree with, with that or not. Um, later, later neo-Calvinism is, is sort of falls outside of my my particular purview. Uh, so to, to for me to connect the dots exactly would be would be hard. Um, and again, neo-Calvinism itself is is a broad uh, camp that has variations within it. So I, again, I'm I, I'm a bit adverse to making big generally <laughs> general sweeping statements uh, that this is absolutely connected. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of hard to say. Well, that's my favorite thing to do when I talk to historians <laughs> is make them make the connections they don't want to make. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I am interested. Is so you mentioned early on how one thing you found is the significance of the exegetical reasoning for mm. the conclusions they were coming to. It's it seems like to me a lot of people who live in our context would probably look back and say, No, 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 that's just the air they breathe, it's probably not exegetical, it's probably cultural. So if they live today, they would think differently yeah. about how to format this. But what you're saying makes me think, no, they're actually making exegetical reasoning. So if they were to live today, would they say, no, we want to reject this form of government? We, we should endeavor for this vision of church-state relationships. Or how would they, yeah. would they reinterpret things? Yeah, good, good, good question. So I, I'm convinced that, uh, especially the Reformed Orthodox, um, Again, because I, I see them locating this distinction with, under their Christology, that the driving force for them was for protecting the divinity of, of Christ. And, and they're doing this within a context of uh, Socinianism, uh, for example, which, which uh, tried to undermine Christ's divinity. And, and the Socinians, especially, you know, um, were, were pretty astute at using Scripture to buttress their argument uh, that that Christ is not divine, and so they would go to to texts such as First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty four or Matthew twenty eight, when Jesus says, you know, all authority has been given to me, and they would say, aha, that you know, there you go. There's evidence that that authority, power is not is not natural to uh, Christ, and so. Uh, therefore, he has to rely on the, the authority power of the Father. He has to receive it. It's not, a, it's not natural to himself, and so therefore he's not God. Uh, he's not divine. And so that's, that's what they're wrestling with. And you see this, you know, whether you're in Leiden, whether in Geneva, whether, whether in Edinburgh, um, that's the particular context that's, that's sort of forcing this, crystallizing this distinction. 
it's not so much now there is a there is a trickle down effect to okay then you're then you have to talk about represent those who represent that authority which is representative authorities in the state and in the church so yes there is a trickle down effect to it but their primary goal was to guard the the kingship and authority and the regal power of christ himself first and foremost um, so I, I in my conclusion i talk about this more top-down effect rather than a bottom-up effect uh, a distinction Mm-hmm. They're they're more concerned about how Christ rules and reigns, rather than trying to locate a particular activity, uh, a cultural act- activity that we do, and say, okay, where does it fit now? Yeah. Does it fit under this authority of Christ, or does it, you know, that's that's their that's what they're wrestling with. Yeah, that, that's helpful. So we we haven't spent much time talking about the Edinburgh School. Is that how how similar is that to Leiden and Geneva? Well, the, yeah. The the one reason why I picked that particular context is, uh, of course, during the 17th century, that was perhaps the most politically instable uh, context. Um, you know, you have the the whole Covenanter movement uh, there, um, so it's a it's a very fun context to study. Um, you know, Geneva at that time was, was was much more stable, and so that's that's why I was able to contrast a, a more of a stable political context versus Edinburgh, which was uh, very unstable. Um, you know, you have the Glorious Revolution, all all of that happening, and in coming to very similar theological conclusions in in these very different uh, contexts. Yeah, that's helpful. So uh, for those, I imagine there's quite a few students who are interested in researching these things now, given the tumult that's gone over the last 10, 15 years in our own context, particularly Western anyway. If you were to tell them, study X, Y, Z, what areas are most fertile, or maybe what areas are also most needed to think about for the health of the church? Hmm. Yeah, very good. Um, that's a that's a good question. Of, of course, one thing that that I want to highlight is the unique identity of the church, what the church is called to do, and and this is what I, I very much appreciate from uh, Dr. Van Drunen, is um, in terms of highlighting the the unique calling that the church has, in terms of ministering word and sacrament, and and that that. Yeah, that very unique identity that the church has, very different from uh, what we are called to do as as citizens, you know, w- within this earthly uh, realm. So that would be, you know, one th- one thing that that this study I, I, I hope highlights and and certainly want to maintain is the, the the uniqueness of the church, what the church is called to do, the mission of the church, and then also the role of the authorities within the church. Uh, what what are their roles? Uh, what are they called to do? How do they how do they represent the authority of Christ? And how do they do that properly? Um, so, you know, in terms of staying in their lane, uh, what what they're called to do, um, even in the context. Uh, in in class, we had a lot of fun. Uh, of course, we're we're considering this post COVID. So, how did the church wrestle with with various um, 
you know, restrictions from the government, uh, lots of different questions. Where to, where, where's the line in terms of obedience and then, you know, obedience to God, and this is what God has called us to do, or, or obedience to the government, his, his uh, representative authority in terms of the state. Uh, there's lots of fun areas to in, investigate, lots of different case studies that you can apply that to, but to be very solid in our principles for that and then to apply it well. Uh, I mean, I, you know, this has created so much uh, division and turmoil, questions uh, within the church. And um, so if we begin with, I think, I think if we, we need to begin with proper definitions, uh, very grounded within God's word, be so sure in that, that, you know, once we then come to a case that tests our principles, we're, we're much more well-founded, right, when these very um, concrete applications uh, come up. Okay, now I want to think about pastors or ministers or just any lay member who is serving and helping to love their church. What are some possible recommended resources you might have for them? I know you've mentioned the source of division that this has been over the last four, eight, ten, twelve plus years. Uh, so things that can help equip people to think critically and well about this topic that can develop the right sort of sensibilities and related things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, different different resources. Um. I don't have a I don't have like a number one resource that that pops in my mind. Um, you know I, th I think Van Drunen has has done like I said a good a systematic work uh, to this. He's he's written was well, his latest work uh, Politics After Christendom. That's a very helpful resource. I believe that was in 2020. Um, so that's that's helpful. And then you know contrast it, put it side by side with you know work by Stephen Wolf. Uh, others so really wrestle through these these particular questions. Um, I, I I have not myself really gone into the area of political theology. That's that's kind of not my forte. I tried as much as possible to stay in the historical theology, but I mean I find it I find it interesting and, and fascinating. Um, but it, it's not exactly my my forte. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So the last question I want to ask is, you're at Puritan right now, and you all have a great PhD program. Do you supervise PhD students? And if you do, are there particular areas that you're most interested in supervising students in? Sure, yeah. Yes, we. Yes, I do. Um, I, I actually just had, uh, we, we just had graduation, uh, you know, a couple, couple days ago, and I was able to uh, see my first uh, student go through so that was that was really exciting for me um, again my, my area would be historical theology I would love to oversee uh, dissertations in, in that area particularly uh, continental stuff um, there are others on our faculty who deal with uh, non-continental or English um, uh, material it's not as that's not especially my area but anything continental um, I love systematic theology, covenant theology, anything, anything along those lines. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. So, Dr. Bakey, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about uh, the duplex regnum and things related to it. Uh, thanks for 
taken the, the, the curveballs that I like to pitch to all of our historians and taken it like a champ. Sometimes people, when I ask them, they're historians, I'm like, what, what do you think about this? They're like, I don't want to answer that. So, <laughs> right. Like, I get it, but it's still fun. Gotta, so <laughs> gotta try to stay ob- as objective as, as possible. Right? Yeah, that's right. So thanks for doing this. It's been a lot of fun. Everybody who's been listening, you, got, you go check out his work. Go check out Puritan if you're not familiar. Uh, I think their seminary is just awesome. The work that they're doing there is unique and is flexible for ministers who are in their local congregations and just don't have the ability to leave, yeah. um, but can still get the the nurturing and the educational opportunities that, I mean, no, nothing will replace residential. But what Puritan does is, is, in my mind, as close to residential as you can get without moving. So... Yeah. Yeah. Treat you like a normal student. You get to be engaged with everybody else in class. I, I think it's fabulous. So, but, go but ahead. I, I just might add, you know, what what you also started with this this blend of both the academic and the pastoral, right? That that really is the the heart of our seminary. I hope with with my work as well uh, that we want to be rigorously academic, uh, you know, in terms of producing quality work, quality students but then also uh, students that have a heart, a passion for God, for, for learning and following God, right? Wanting to serve God well. So really our, our uh, motto might be is, uh, unwritten motto is head, heart, hand, right? And so, you know, informing your, your head with, with uh, robust knowledge, but an inflamed heart that wants to uh, follow God and, and with hands that are ready to serve uh, God's people in this church. Yeah, and I'll, my own personal testimony, I took a course with Dr. Beakey, so maybe I'm biased, but I think everything he said is exactly right. The, even the student body, it was just very clear to me that these people actually love Jesus, but they actually, they're doing the rigorous sort of theology that I desire to do. Um, so I, I, the blend of both was evident in the students. Uh, it's evident in the education that you receive. I know Cody Float, one of my friends, he's in the PhD track for Old Testament at Puritan, and he raves about Puritan all the time. So personal experience, go check it out uh, as a resource because I think they're they're doing it the right way, and uh, I think you'll definitely benefit from it personally, pastorally, all the the things. It's it's highly recommended. So everybody's been tuning in. Thanks for checking it out. Uh, This is the London Lyceum. Uh, We are the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.